We're beginning a new series of messages from the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them. If you don't have your Bibles, I do want to encourage you to bring them each Sunday. Uh, you can look it up electronically if, if that's a better option for you. If you don't have a Bible and you want, there are some at the back table. If you're on site, you could grab one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those as our gift to you. Now, this morning, just a little bit of a, a warning. Because we are entering into this study of the letter of Philippians, there's a fair bit of contextual information that I want to help unpack for us so that we get our bearings. We, we know a little bit what we can know about this church and about Paul and the circumstances around the letter, this city. And so uh, at least the first part of my message this morning might feel a little bit more like a lecture than a sermon, but we, we are going to get to the text a little bit later on, just looking at verses 1 and 2 today, but just so that you kind of know what to expect I was sitting uh, recently with a doctor friend of mine, and she shared with me a story that I want to share with you. She, a number of years ago, she had traveled to Haiti, actually, on a mission trip, and uh, in the middle of the night, one particular night, she was asleep in her room when suddenly there was this urgent knock on the door. She, she got up and she went to the door, and there was uh, one of the hotel managers standing there with a flashlight saying, can you please come and help? Uh, in, in Haiti, at least in the place where she was, at night there was no power. Uh, power was out, and so generators were off. What, there was no power. So she, she got dressed and followed this manager through the hotel by flashlight and was led into the bowels of the hotel, into this basement room, no windows, not that that would have made a difference. It was night, uh, where there was uh, one of the cooks was laying on the floor on a pile of rags in agony. Something was clearly wrong with him. And so my friend, by the light of a flashlight, did the best she could to do a physical exam and, and try and determine what was going on. And she said in a, in a, in a flash of, of insight, she, she thought of what it might be and how she could try and treat this issue. And so she prescribed an, an aggressive, strong medication. He, she gave him two pills right then and left four more, take two more in the morning and two more a little bit later tomorrow in the day. And then she was led back to her room and went back to sleep. The next morning, she was in the hotel dining room, and she was really curious, a little anxious about how this man was, what had transpired through the rest of the night. And so finally, she asked one of the hotel staff, like, do you know what happened to that man that I saw last night? And he said no, but he would go and find out. He went into the kitchen, and what seemed like a long time later, he came out carrying this platter of fresh, cut-up fruit, for her. And he shared with her the good news that this was not only prepared for, purchased by that man that she had treated, that he had had a remarkable improvement over the course of those hours after she saw him and treated him, and he was, he was well. And he blessed her with that as a way of showing his gratitude. A desperate plea for help. In the, in the middle of the night. That's how this story, the story of the Philippian church, began. The Apostle Paul and his traveling companions are in Troas. That is a city in western Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And they go to sleep, and during the night, God gave Paul a vision of a man from Macedonia, a man from Europe, who, who was crying out, begging, come and help us. Come and help us. And so Paul and his companions got up, and uh, they boarded a ship, and they headed for Europe. 
landing in Neapolis, this port city on the coast of present-day Greece. And there they traveled 16 kilometers inland to the city of Philippi. This is the beginning of the, the gospel expansion into Europe. As was the case for the city of Philippi, as is the case for many cities, if not all cities, geography contributed significantly to its importance and its significance. Uh, Macedonia, Greece, was a mountainous, uh, uh, mountainous province, and Philippi was located on the side of a mountain uh, overlooking a huge fertile plain. It was a, a great location. There was a ridge of mountains around it that had a depression right by Philippi. So anyone who wanted to access the sea, the Aegean Sea, that was between Turkey and Greece and, and Macedonia, uh, needed to go through Philippi. Not only was it, Philippi was actually located on a Roman road that spanned across the, the uh, Greece Peninsula, across, so dividing the Adriatic Sea from the Aegean Sea. In fact, I'll get, Joy can pop up a map for us behind, try and show you, maybe you can see that. The lights go off. Wanted to point this out, but this isn't working. Anyways, I could use my finger, but that's not going to work technologically challenged. Anyways, this is the Aegean Sea, uh, and Paul went from Troas on the... That's really irritating. Anyways, there we go. Oh. Thank you. So Troas is over here. This is where Paul had his vision at night, and Philippi is up there. And so this is the Aegean Sea, the Adriatic Sea is over here. And there's this road, this Roman road, that spans across the Greek peninsula. Rome is over here, and then further west is Spain, and I'll mention that in a few minutes. So Philippi was in a, a unique uh, location geographically. It was the place where people had to uh, go through when they came from the sea, it was on the Ignatian, on this Roman road, and it was also a place located really close to a mountain that was rich with minerals and gold, and so it was a very important place. It was originally founded as Cronides, but it was conquered by Philip of Macedon, that is the father of Alexander the Great, I'm sure you've all heard of him, and so uh, Philip of Macedon renamed it Philippi in honor of himself. Now, Philippi, I don't want to get bogged, too bogged down in history, but uh, uh, the history of the city, but it was, uh, there was a very major and important battle that happened close to it between uh, Cassius and Brutus, the assassins of Julius Caesar, and Octavian, who would become Emperor Augustus and Mark Anthony. And when Octavian and Mark Anthony defeated Brutus and Cassius, they refounded this city of Philippi, if you will, and they designated it as a Roman colony, giving a couple of things really special about it. They granted the citizens of Philippi Roman citizenship as a gift. Not only that, but the second thing they did was they, they retired, retired soldiers in the Roman military were, were sent to live there to populate this city. So this city became a very pro-Roman city, and that's going to play a significant role. These people received Roman citizenship, and soldiers loyal to Rome uh, were planted there. And so that factor will, will play out in significant ways 
uh, as, uh, as we make our way through this letter. Um, Philippi was in that sense very unique, and one trio of scholars writes this about Philippi. In every respect, a colony was intended to be a piece of Rome transplanted abroad. So this is uniquely designated as a colony of Rome. Uh, I want you to think today in terms of an embassy. Uh, Probably some of you have heard Brennan talk about his trip to Kuwait. Three years ago, our family traveled to Ottawa. Uh, I want you to think embassy. We walked past an embassy, the embassy of Kuwait, and Brennan stuck his leg through the gate onto the ground and said, I've been to Kuwait. And technically speaking, he was. He's good thing he didn't get his leg shot off or something. But an embassy, that land is officially, that is sovereign territory of that nation. And so that's what, what Philippi is, this piece of Rome apart, outside of the city of Rome. This is, this is uniquely a, a colony. People are granted citizenship, great loyalty to, uh, to Rome. And that will be significant as we move forward. I've already talked briefly about the founding of this city, how it happened. Paul had this vision of a man from Macedonia, from Europe, calling him over. We know a little bit more that I want to unpack for you. Uh, we can read the story of the founding of this church in Acts chapter 16. I, I encourage you to do that at some point. Um, we know this, that Philippi did not have a Jewish community, not, certainly not a significant one. We know that because there was no Jewish synagogue in the city of Philippi. In order for a synagogue to be established, there needed to be a community of at least 10 Jewish men. And, uh, and there's no synagogue in Philippi, so clearly there were not many Jews, if any Jews. Uh, in light of that, uh, Paul and his companions, when they arrive there, they go on the Sabbath outside the city gate to this place by the river where they expected to find a place of prayer. That is, if there was no Jewish synagogue in a place, uh, Jewish people, God fears, those who worship the God of Israel would go outside the city gate. That was understood to be a place of prayer. And so Paul and his companions go outside the city gate of Philippi on the Sabbath uh, to see if there's anyone there. And there they encounter a group of women, one of them being a woman named Lydia. Um, one, one quick aside, Paul, Paul and his companions, who are his companions? Well, there's several of them that we know. Uh, one is Silas. Uh, Acts chapter 16, the founding of this church happens right after Acts 15, no surprise there. Acts 15 is where Paul and Barnabas had a big dispute. Remember a sharp disagreement and they parted company. Barnabas ended up taking uh, John Mark and traveling one way. Paul chose Silas and went another way. So that's just happened. Paul and Silas, along the way, just before this, the beginning of chapter 16, Paul meets Timothy, who will become a colleague, uh, and he will travel with him. So Timothy is there, and we know also that Luke, Dr. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, is also with them at this point. So those are his companions. Now, uh, where were we? Yeah, back, uh, Paul and his companions go out the side of the city gate. They, there they meet Lydia, this place of prayer, Lydia and some other women. Uh, Lydia was from the city of Thyatira, which was, again, back across the Aegean Sea in what is known as Turkey. Thyatira is one of the cities we encounter in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, there are seven letters to seven churches, and one of those churches is Thyatira. That's where Lydia is from. She's a businesswoman, quite wealthy. Thyatira was famous for its beautiful dyes. 
uh, the most expensive, the most desirable of which was purple. Uh, the purple dye was made from an extract from a particular shellfish. And so this was very uh, expensive cloth. And she's a seller of purple cloth. She's a, a rich businessman, a wealthy businesswoman from Thyatira, now relocated to Philippi in the course of her business. She is leading, uh, she has, sorry, she is uh, a God-fearer, is what we read. Now, what does that mean? It means that somewhere, probably back in Thyatira, she had heard uh, She'd heard about the God of Israel. She had come to believe in and was learning about worshiping, praying to the God of Israel. She was a God-fearer, but what that means is that she had not gone the whole way to identify herself with the Jewish people. There were certain Jewish identity markers, boundary markers, if you will, observing the Sabbath, observing food laws, and if you were a male, being circumcised that marked you out as part of God's people. So she had not gone all that way and identified herself with the Jewish people, but she was a God-fearer. So we know that about her too. Uh, Luke, in the book of Acts, chapter 16, verse 14, we read this, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So Paul and his companions go outside the city gate. He begins to proclaim the, the gospel, speak of Jesus, and God moves in Lydia's heart, and she becomes a believer. Not only her, but her whole household. Uh, now, it, it's, it's worth noting that Lydia is the head of a household. That would have been unusual, odd, in many places in the empire, but not in Greek Macedonia, where women had a, a long and more significant role in public life. She is the head of her household, so not only her, but everyone in her household, her, her servants, her slaves, other family members who were a part of her household, also put their faith in Jesus, and they're baptized. Now, very clearly, Lydia was a woman of considerable means, because uh, successful in her business, because when she comes to faith and is baptized, she then proceeds to insist Paul, to Paul and his companions that they come and stay with her in her home, and so they do. And the church in Philippi is born. Now, there are several other members of this church that we know about from uh, the book of Acts. Not only Lydia and her household, but almost certainly a young slave girl. If you read on in the Acts story, Paul and his companions are in the city, and this young slave girl is possessed by an evil spirit by which she predicts the future. And Paul, at one point, becomes so exasperated, he turns to the girl, and he commands that evil spirit to leave her, and the spirit does. And so it's likely that that young girl ends up a part of this church. But through that experience, what happens to Paul and Silas? Many of you know the, the, the owners of the slave girl are furious because they've lost their means for, for gaining easy money, and so they drag Paul and Silas before the magistrates. They are flogged mercilessly, and then they are thrown in prison in Philippi, in this city. And that's where we read about Paul and Silas being in stocks, and at midnight they are singing and, and praising God. And there's this violent earthquake. And remember the story of the jailer? He is about to, to kill himself, run himself through with his sword, because under Roman law, if he let any prisoners escape uh, by law, it was his life for theirs. And so he's ready to kill himself, and Paul cries out in the darkness, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Miraculously, none of the prisoners ran away. And at that point in the night, that jailer cries out to Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul proclaims the hope of Jesus, and that jailer, along with his household, put their faith in Jesus. They become Christians, and in the middle of the night, take Paul and Silas and, 
He washes their wounds. And then He and His household are washed in the waters of baptism. They too are likely members of this church. So Lydia, this wealthy businesswoman in her household, this slave girl delivered from an evil spirit, this blue-collar Roman soldier guarding the prison and his household, these and a few other people that we will meet along the way here are part of this church There's one other important detail I want to share about this congregation. They are referenced at a number of places throughout Paul's letters in the New Testament. And we know that this church, though Lydia was wealthy, they certainly experienced financial hardship, and yet they are commended for being an incredibly generous church. Here's what Paul writes about this church in Philippi in 2 Corinthians 8. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. They were generous. They gave sacrificially to support Paul and his ministry. But here, this text is specifically about giving to support the Christians in Judea who are struggling with great poverty. This is the collection that Paul was collecting for the church in Judea. These are things that we know about this church. These are some of the people who formed this congregation. Now, we don't know, we're not told specifically how long Paul and his companions were in Philippi. We know that they left shortly after Paul and Silas were flogged and imprisoned. But they were there clearly long enough to develop a deep and intimate friendship with this church, with these people, the the jailer and Lydia and others who came to faith in Jesus. Because this letter will is uniquely among Paul's letters. It is a letter of friendship. There is a sense of deep uh, intimacy in this letter that we don't see in Paul's other letters. A deep affection, a profound friendship. What about uh, the occasion of the letter? When was it written and why and from where? Some of these questions of dates we can't say for certain, but according to uh, the timeline that Luke gives us in the book of Acts, it is likely that this church was founded around 49 CE or AD, however you want to look at that. So right around the year 49 uh, CE. Uh, We know that Paul wrote this letter, the letter to the Philippians, from jail, from a prison. Now, Paul was in jail uh, numerous times, but tradition tells us that Paul wrote this from a Roman imprisonment, which would put his imprisonment in Rome between the years years 61 and 62, likely. So it is likely that Paul is writing this letter 13 years after the experiences that he had in Acts 16, the founding of this church. Now, there's some scholarly debate about potentially he wrote it from another prison rather than Rome, but I, I think that there's, there's no good reason to not believe that, that it was from Rome as has been held for uh, throughout ch- church history. Now, Paul ended up in a Roman prison. You'll remember the story if you're familiar with the book of Acts. Paul traveled with this offering to Jerusalem, to the church there to strengthen the church, and there he's confronted by Uh, The Jews who form a mob, they want to kill him. He is arrested, rescued by the Romans, imprisoned, and then they were going to plot to kill him And when he's transferred to Caesarea. He spent some time in prison in Caesarea, and eventually uh, he stands trial before first Felix, sorry, yeah, Felix and then Festus, and then he appeals to the emperor, 
And he ends up being put on a ship to go to Rome. In the course of that, his travels, he is shipwrecked on the island of Malta. I had the privilege of going to Malta a number of years ago, standing on St. Paul Beach, where they think that they washed ashore. And that shipwreck, eventually, though, Paul gets to Rome. And he is imprisoned there for uh, at least two years. We know that from the book of Acts. Now, I want to uh, just share with you that how the book of Acts concludes. This is, these are the last verses of the book of Acts. Paul is under house arrest in the city of Rome. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, here's a curious thing. We are left to wonder what happened next. Uh, Paul is imprisoned, house arrest, fairly decent conditions as far as being under arrest, but he's in Rome for at least two years in this rented house. And that's how Luke concludes the book of Acts. He doesn't tell us. Now, did he not tell us what happened next because uh, that was as much of the story as had happened at that point? Or was it simply because his goal as an author was concluded? I would suggest it's probably the latter. Because Luke, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are part one and part two, both written by Dr. Luke, who was a sometimes traveling companion with Paul. We know that he traveled with him at some points because if you read the story of, of Acts, look for this clue. There are times where Luke talks about Paul and his companions, and there are times where Luke talks about we. Uh, chapter 16 is one of those times where he talks about we. So Luke was accompanying Paul for parts of the journey. But, but the Gospel of Luke uh, begins early on. The genealogy in Luke uh, goes all the way back to Adam. It sort of begins with this global perspective and, and goes down to Jerusalem where Jesus dies on the cross. And then the book of Acts begins with Jesus saying, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so I, I think that just Luke tells this story beginning globally to Jerusalem, then from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, and he, he concludes the book of Acts, the story of the, the expansion of the gospel with Paul in the, the very heart of the Roman Empire in Rome. And so re regardless, we're not told what happens next. We know from Romans chapter 15 that Paul had a desire to go to Spain further west, uh, but we don't know. Did he ever make that trip? In Philippians, what will become clear is that though he's in prison, he expects that he will be released. And it's likely that he was, and either went west towards Spain or back east to churches he'd previously planted, because tradition says that Paul was executed under Nero in 64, two years later after his Roman imprisonment, rounded up with many other Christians and put to death. There was a great fire in Rome. Nero uh, falsely blamed it on the church, on Christians, and there was a great persecution. That was a persecution in which Peter was crucified upside down, according to church tradition, and Paul was beheaded by Nero. And so those two years, we don't know which way Paul went, but he, he's likely to have been released after writing this letter, and at some point recaptured and put to death. Regardless, for our purposes, it's it's worth noting that Paul wrote this letter around sometime in 62 A.D. Uh, to this church about 13 years after he had founded it. I want to highlight two realities. Uh, one, uh, two realities that, that prompt this letter. He's writing to this church. One is the church in Philippi is experiencing suffering. They are experiencing opposition. 
Uh, we will see that clearly as we make our way through here. But not only is there this suffering, this external opposition, but there is also internally there is some unrest. There is some rivalry. There's some ambition, some pride, which is why Paul will call them to humility, uh, which we will see uh, the beginning of already today. So uh, thanks for bearing with me as we get our bearings. Let's turn now to the text. We're going to look at verse 1 and 2 this morning. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, these two verses are introductory, but they are not insignificant. Uh, sometimes we can treat verses like this as kind of just a throwaway. Let's just get through this to the real stuff. Uh, but I want to suggest that these are more than this necessary formality. They, they actually uh, provide hints, clues, if you will, to some major themes that are coming. Uh, Paul skillfully introduces three themes, three things that I want to highlight uh, from those two verses. First, uh, that servanthood is the shape of discipleship. Secondly, uh, the holiness and oneness of the church as God's people in Christ. And thirdly, the heart of the gospel itself comes through here loudly already. That we have peace with God through the grace of Christ. So first, the servanthood is the shape of discipleship. Our letter begins this way, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now a quick word about the inclusion of Timothy's name at this point. Uh, we might be, feel led to conclude that, that Timothy is a co-author, that the content of this letter comes from uh, both Paul and Timothy, but that would be incorrect. Timothy, though he's included here, and similarly we, we find someone else's name with Paul sometimes in some of his other letters, this letter is from Paul. We know that because as we read it, uh, Paul will say, I say, not we say. So just a clue. He has included Timothy. Uh, why? Well, probably two reasons. It's likely, I would suggest, that Paul served as the scribe, as the secretary writing the letter. We know that Paul made use of others who would write at his dictation, and so Timothy is with him. He's a ministry partner, a colleague, and likely the one writing. And also, Timothy was well known to the Philippians. In fact, in chapter 2, Paul is going to say to the Philippians in this letter, I, I want to send Timothy to you. Timothy knew them, he loved them, he was involved in this ministry, uh, involved in the letter, in that likely writing it, and so Paul includes him here. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. Regardless, uh, Paul includes him here, and interestingly, Paul points to his own identity not as an apostle of Christ. If you look at his other letters, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, look through most of Paul's other letters, he introduces himself as Paul an Apostle, Paul an Apostle, Paul an Apostle. Here he doesn't do that. Here he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Why is that? Well, I mentioned the deep friendship that Paul had with this church in Philippi, and that comes to play here. Paul is not going to stand on his role as an apostle, point to his authority as an apostle as he exhorts this church to obedience in a number of ways. Rather, he's going to point to their deep friendship. As his friend, he's going to implore them. It's coming from a different place. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, uh, our text says servants. The original word would have been understood by them uh, as slave. 
Literally, it's slave. Now, servant is, is accurate. It's a, it's a fine translation. But it does lose some of the force of what's going on here. For the original readers to read this, the, the believers in Philippi to read this, they would have thought only slave. And, and one of the reasons that English translators translate it servants is because of the baggage that we as Western readers have that arises out of America's experience uh, of slavery. Um, but the word, the Greek word here, doulos, uh, means slave. Here's what Gordon Fee says. It's, it's one who was owned, one who was subservient to the master of the household. He goes on and says, To be sure, the institution of slavery in antiquity was a far cry from the racial slavery that blighted American society and the English society that made it possible by the slave trade. Even so, the slave in the Roman Empire was not a free person, but belonged to another. Thus, whatever else the word carries connotations of humility and servitude. That's what we need to hear. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Those who belong to Christ Jesus. Those who serve Christ Jesus. Paul begins this way, identifying themselves this way as slaves of Christ. He is pointing emphatically to the fact that they belong to Christ. That he and Timothy belong to Christ and by... Uh, inference, so do the Philippians. So do the Philippians that, that this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, is to be a servant, a slave, one who belongs to Christ, one who pours out your life for Christ. And, and that's why in Philippians chapter 2, the most famous part of Philippians, Paul will, will recount a hymn about Christ. He will say this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a doulos. Translated servant, but slave, same word here, as a slave. That is, we follow Christ in the same way that Christ lived. That, that we are servants, we are slaves, we belong to another. Paul here in his very introduction is, is highlighting this theme that will play a profoundly significant role throughout the letter. A life of discipleship is a life of servitude, of belonging to we belong to Him. Again, Fee writes this, They are Christ's slaves, bound to Him as slaves to their Master, but whose slavery is expressed in loving service on behalf of Christ for the Philippians and others. Perhaps some of you uh, have listened to or heard about the podcast that is in the process of unfolding, I think, two more episodes to come, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Mars Hill was a church in Seattle. It grew into a megachurch and then fell apart. And over the course of, I'm not sure what it'll be, 13, 14 episodes, this is recounting the history of that church and what happened. And one of the things that is so clear, a lesson, a challenge to everyone else listening, because this is not, Christianity Today is putting this out, and it's not just, hey, let's talk about their sin. It's exposing the sin of pride, the hubris, this, this arrogance. And here in Philippians, Paul is saying, we're slaves of Christ Jesus. And he will call them to embrace this identity as slaves of Christ Jesus, just as Christ embraced the identity of a slave going to the cross. The second theme that I want to highlight here already in these introductory verses is the, the holiness and oneness of the church as the people of God. Paul has identified himself and Timothy as slaves of Christ Jesus. Then he identifies the church. He says to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. 
Three things I want to note. First, he calls them, he identifies them as God's holy people, literally saints, holy ones. This language echoes Old Testament language speaking of God's people, those belonging to God, those set apart for God's purposes, those who are to bear, uh, uh, to reflect the character of God in the world, those who are His. My people, a holy nation is Old Testament language here, to all God's holy people, to the saints. Believers in Christ constitute the people of God. They are His. They belong to Him. They are set apart for His purposes to reflect His character in the world. Second, they are holy. God's holy people. They are not holy on the basis of their own performance for God. They are holy because they are in Christ Jesus. That is, through faith in Christ, they they are in Christ. They are brought into union with Christ. They are in relationship with Christ. Christ has borne their guilt, our guilt, our sin. He died for us, bearing the penalty that we deserve because of our sin. And through faith in Him, we receive, we are clothed with His perfection, His holiness. In Christ, we are God's holy people. Third, they're God's holy people in Philippi, in this Roman colony, in this, in this city where people have Roman citizenship, in this city where people's uh, loyalty is to Rome, they live as citizens of heaven, as they live as those whose loyalty is to Christ, as those who proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior, while their neighbors say Lord and Savior about Caesar. They are God's holy people in Philippi. Two other things I want to include or note, and that, that is first the inclusion of the word all. It's very emphatic. All God's holy people. Not just some of you. Paul's writing to all God's holy people in Philippi. And that's significant because there's an odd line that follows that. It says, together with the overseers and deacons. Now, I'm not going to get into what those offices or roles look like. Simply this. That Paul is, is going to great lengths to ensure that he makes the point very clearly that, that the message of this letter is for all. That is for every believer. It is for leaders and it is for lay people. It is for those who are mature in their faith, those who are, are not so mature, those who are new in their faith, those who have been in the faith for 13 years since the church was birthed in this place. He is not speaking just to some. This word from Christ is for all. All God's holy people. In Christ Jesus at Philippi. And that significance, uh, that fact, this call for all is significant because Paul is in this letter going to call this church to unity. There are repeated and strong exhortations to unity, oneness. In Christ we are one. In Christ you are my sister, you are my brother. We belong to one another. And there is to be unity amongst us as God's people. And Paul here already is pointing us to that fact. We are made holy in Christ, and we are made one through Christ. The third thing I want to point to, and that is simply the gospel, the good news that we have peace with God through Christ, in Christ. In verse 2, we come to Paul's standard greeting. This is the way he opens almost every letter if we read through the New Testament. And here, Gordon Fee, New Testament scholar, writes this, here is an example of Paul's turning into gospel everything he sets his hand to. What does Fee mean for that? Well, there's a standard way of, uh, of opening a letter in the ancient world. Paul and the, the other apostles, the letters we have in the New Testament, are not the only letters of the ancient day. There were other people writing letters, and so we can compare forms and 
and see how people did it. And just in the same way that if you were to write a letter today, there's sort of a standard format. There was, there was a standard format in that day, and typically letters would open with the word greetings. Now, we, we lose something in, in the English translation. In Greek, the word is karen. And Paul changes that. Rather than greetings, karen, he, he says kares, grace. Grace to you. Grace to you and peace. Again, our, our English translations typically translate grace and peace to you, which is fine. But I think there's significance to Paul's word order in the original where it's grace to you and peace. Because that actually highlights both the, the heart of the Gospel and its effect. Grace to you and peace. We freely receive God's grace through faith in Christ. We are forgiven. Our sins are washed away. Christ bears the punishment that we deserve. We are clothed with His righteousness. That is all a gift. It's not earned. It's not merited. It's completely undeserved. It is a free gift of God. It is grace to us. Grace to us. And what is the result of our reception of that gift of grace? It's peace with God. It's shalom. It's, it's right relatedness. We are adopted as daughters and sons. We are brought into right relationship. We were God's enemies, but now we are children of God through the grace of Christ. Grace to you and peace. That's Paul's regular greeting. Letter after letter. Grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. It is in a seed form. It is the Gospel proclaimed. And the Gospel that stands at the very heart of this letter and all that we will yet discover. The Gospel, this peace that we have with God through the grace of Christ is the starting note that Paul sounds here in his opening words of this letter. And that brings us to the place where we can begin. Where we can dive more deeply into the study of this letter, this word from Christ to us. What, what began with a vision, what, what began with this vision in the night, a man begging, come, come over to Macedonia and help us, has given birth to a church, a community, mixed uh, of people like Lydia and this jailer and a slave girl and, and others who hear the news of Christ. And, and they, this church begins to grow and live out their faith in the city of Philippi, this Roman colony, this very, very pro-Roman city. And now, 12 or 13 years later, as they are experiencing suffering, and as within their own midst they're experiencing some division, some internal strife, Paul writes this letter calling them to servanthood. Reminding them here in the beginning that a life of discipleship is a life shaped by the cross. That we live as slaves of Christ. Pointing them to the fact that in Christ they are holy and they are one. They, they belong and exist as a unity, as the, the holy people of God in this city. God's mission post in this place. And He proclaims to them the Gospel. Grace to you and peace. May these notes reverberate in our minds as we make our way deeper into this letter. May we be reminded of these themes and may Christ have His way in us for His glory. 
Amen.